Well, I, I've been doing it for, you know, since 94 and, and there's not much math in most coding that I've seen. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just experience in the field. Um, mm. There are some exceptions, maybe some type of game programming, but it, it's maybe AI. But then again, those, the, the complex math, the physics, for example, the games program, you, there, are, there are objects that you can just leverage. It's Yandra here, and this is The Pioneer Show, the show where we talk with innovators, makers, entrepreneurs, basically people who are trailing their own trails and creating their own lives so that we all can learn how to work on our own lives. If this is your first time here, thank you for downloading and listening, and I appreciate you taking the time to hear this episode. Subscribe and enjoy listening to the pioneers of today. And if you're a repeat listener, welcome back. This is episode 24, and I'm your host, Andre Dalquerque. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter, as well as the show at Pioneer Show on Instagram. One of the things you might be already figuring out about this show is that I'm fascinated by people who build their own careers. And I don't only want to know about how they did it, but how you or me can apply this for our own lives. One of the areas I believe that has one great potential to liberate our own careers is programming. Now, I've already interviewed people that teach how to code before, such as previous guest Elena Kolevska. And today I bring you someone that for so many years has been teaching people how to code, how to break into technology, how to build an entire new career, be it as a an employee, freelancer, or even as an entrepreneur. In this episode, I bring you Stefan Mischuk, the person that I like to call sober programmer. Even though I didn't tell him this as much during our interview, I believe Stefan has a very practical approach on learning and even teaching. With a successful YouTube page with over 100k subscribers and an educational technology business, Stefan has been teaching people how to code, if I'm not mistaken, since before the turn of the millennium. In this conversation, we talk about his company, Studio Web, a company that teaches kids to code, his experience on teaching and even learning how to code, and even debunking some ideas and myths about the industry itself. Stefan is an incredible person, and I can't stress enough how much I believe in his products. So you understand, I am taking his course, his full-stack course, and I have the rest of his course bought before even talking with him. Without talking a lot more, let's jump into the conversation with Stefan. Welcome to the show, Stefan. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I'm very good, very good, very excited for this conversation today, to be honest. Cool, cool. For people who at home who don't know who you are, care to give us a presentation? Uh, in a nutshell, I started writing code in the 90s. I think it was even 94, 95. And I wrote uh, my first web page, hand-coded, for my import-export slash water purification slash rare fish business. <laughs> had nothing to do with tech. And the reason I got into writing code is because at that time, the web was so young. It was such a new thing. When my brother approached me, he said, he said to me, Steph, you should put up a website. And I said to him, well, what's a website? So I had one of the very first websites in the world, period. I had one of the very first business websites in the world. And at that point in time, you had people like Bill Gates thinking that the web wasn't going to be anything special. It was just a blip. But I went with it and... Uh, and I was able to open up markets for that business, you know, in Europe and Asia, and I dealt with South, South America, Africa, and the web kind of allowed me to reach out to these people uh, all over the world. Fast forward a couple of years, I sold out of that business, and then I went into uh, freelance uh, development, writing uh, web apps and software for various small businesses and some large companies here and there. Fast forward a few more years, I started developing my own SaaS uh, software. I tried different things. Mm -hmm. And then I found myself in the educational space where I produced my first course. 
I think it was in 2003. It's been a while. I had one, I was doing video training way back in the early days. And I come from a family of teachers. My father's a teacher, many of my aunts, cousins, like five or six of my cousins are teachers. So it's kind of like inbred in us. Mm-hmm. And it was not something that I planned to get into. I just fell into that because when I would write uh, proposals for business uh, businesses for software, I keep getting back from the suits from the business people that they could really understand for the first time what a nerd was actually saying. Mm-hmm. And I think that just came back to the background, my family background in teaching. And anyway, from there went on. And now I have Studio Web, which is our, my SaaS that uh, I sell into schools. And the schools use this to teach kids how to code. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fairly sophisticated system and it does mm-hmm. sophisticated tracking. It has all kinds of tools that teachers would need. And uh, I think... The last point to, to say is that the courses are characterized by the fact, and you see it in my YouTube channel, it's very practical or in, in its orientation. Mm-hmm. For me, coding from the very beginning has been a tool for my business. So I always, when I teach coding, I, I, I choose and I pick the elements of, of a language or of a technology that is required to move the person forward so that they actually do something for real. Mm-hmm. So there you go in a nutshell. That's very interesting. And I would like to go from the beginning. So you said that you had a export and import business. Mm-hmm. How did you fell into that for sure? I'm, I assume, cause I know a little bit of your back issue. You're, uh, you're studying psychology, correct? I was a psych major in university. Yes. Um, what happened is I started, it was a hobby. I used to be a fish keeper, right? I used to breed rare tropical fish from Africa <laughs> and South America. It's a weird thing. I know. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and, and everybody in the fish keeping game at some point or another, they start breeding fish and they start getting these ideas. They're going to make money breeding fish. <laughs> and, you know, cause once in a while it's like a giant, it's like, it's kind of like buying the Bitcoin at the right time. Once in a while the fish breed and you, you can make a few thousand bucks and then you go, wow, wow, this is cool. Let's do it again. And then it's very difficult. So anyway, I went from the fish business and I needed very specialized products cause of the rare fish I was dealing with. So I, I was I would, all over the place trying to find these water purification products. So I found some some guy out in the States and I was started importing from there. And then I got exclusive uh, rights to distribute that product in Canada. And it sort of just grew out of that. Uh, yeah. In a nutshell. Um, yeah. Funny, funny thing. Um, I, I'm just going to let you know one thing right now that my father actually also is really into fish. Since I remember we've had at least three or four aquariums back in Portugal. Um, <laughs> And if, if, uh, it's, it's guppies, I think that's guppies. guppies. Yeah, guppies. And yeah. He, he, Rami, Ramirezis, I don't know how to, how to say it, Ramirezis. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and he used to farm those, and then he started to farm a little bit of the, the small uh, kind of lobster kind of things. I don't know the, the, the name in, in English, but he used the, to say the, the shrimps. Farm it. Yeah, it kind of shrimp, but not necessarily a shrimp. It was a very, very, very tiny thing. Uh, that used to feed some some other animals as well. So it was a very very interesting thing. So oh, brine shrimp, possibly, possibly, yeah, possibly. Uh, but so you said that you were so you learned to code back then, ninety four, ninety five, like you said. You learned to code on a very primitive internet, right? Yes, yes. Nothing very primitive it is today, I assume. Oh no 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 <laughs> um, no 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 uh, back then. I think, uh, what was the first thing I did? I first, first actual, 
programming I did, if you're going to call it that, was uh, CGI-based programming, which is short for Common Gateway Interface. And it was kind of the, the very first iteration of uh, the dynamic web or the database-driven website, as we used to call it back then, where you would have a website which would send information to a server computer uh, through forms uh, or through hyperlinks. And then we would process those, that string of information and you would do it with CGI and, and most people would write that stuff in Perl. And uh, Perl is a it's powerful language because mainly because of regex, but it's also extremely messy. So yeah, it was very primitive back then. So we had different challenges. It's like so much easier today, even though the web is much more complex today, it's in fact much easier today to write software than it was back then because uh, back then, even though it was much simpler, it's just it was so it was so immature the, the technology. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But so so basically, let let me get this through. So you were studying, you were psych major. You got this weird business that's your hobby. You kind of fell into it, and then you the coding falls into your lap once again. Well, what what happened is I'm in university, and I get a blood disease, and the oh. blood disease. It lasted like about a year or so, and it almost killed me with, when I first got diagnosed. And then I'm on heavy-duty drugs, heavy-duty steroids, danazole, prenazole, and I blow up. I become this 245, 250-pound guy. Like the drugs, the steroids are so powerful uh, an impact on the body that I would, like, I would be lifting buckets of water to do water changes for my fish, and I would get these huge, huge traps. It, it, it looked like I was jacked. Because <laughs> the steroids just like just in, in just jack you up, and then I would anyway. Long story short, because of all the steroids and you know in the hospital twice a week, mm -hmm. etc., my GPA was crashing. So I, I decided to pull out of school, out of the psychology. It was a temporary thing, uh, at least that was the intention, because I didn't want to destroy my GPA. Uh, mm -hmm. But then what happened as I started getting better slowly, slowly. Um, the business started to pick up. The sideline, the hobby business started to build. So I made a choice. I said, yeah, I'm going to die. They got this business is starting to go. I said, I can always go back to school. So I said, oh, I'll just, I'm going to put school on, uh, aside for now. Business. And I never, never went back. I, I owe my professor a paper from 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very fun because uh, I, from all the videos I've seen of yours and from the story that I've read and, and listened, one of the cool mm -hmm. things is that I actually see you, you, you have a very similar story from my father, not in the entrepreneurial mindset so far in the building business so far in school, but my father actually never finished college. And mm -hmm. uh, he's actually one of the people that I know that I was the more entrepreneur from when I was growing up. He was he was working at a company. He's a tech guy. He's a developer. He works on on the server side. He was managing one of... Uh, uh, the I, Iberian Peninsula's bank back structure was one of the, the only people in Portugal and Spain managing that. So, and mm. he's a very always been very entrepreneurial. And funny thing, and we'll get to that during the interview. He also did a lot of martial arts, and he also learned how to code himself. So, it's something that I, <laughs> when I hear from you, it's like I, I've heard this conversation before. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, the martial arts training had a major impact in terms of my business and in my coding as well, mm -hmm. because certain principles are universal. Yeah, of course. They apply. That's we'll go, cool. We'll, we'll tackle that. So, so you were saying, so you were learning code. 
and you said that you got sold out or you, you got bought out from your import export business. Is that it? So that when you started to freelance? Yes. I, I sold my position there mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, personal reasons. And mm-hmm. uh, so as a result, uh, I decided to go into freelancing uh, to make money while, while I figured out what the next next step was going to be. At this point, I'm in my mid twenties, I guess, early mid twenties. So it was, uh, it was kind of like, there was a period of two years where I was doing freelancing and I was trying different things. I even, and I would do not just coding. I would do, uh, I did like 3d animation for a friend's company and, and, you know, primitive stuff on 3d max, and, you know, and then I would, you know, do design work and cause I have a, I have a graphic design background mm-hmm. and, uh, eventually I went into coding cause I just found coding and building systems much more, uh, much more fun. So that's yeah. very good. So I actually have a question cause I uh, actually, it's something that I've always be, been very interested about the freelancing game. I assume that the, the the infrastructure of a country in the 90s, even until today, some countries are still not quite adept to the freelancer game. So how we, how was it to explain to your family, like you said, a family of teachers, usually teachers a little bit more conservative, not necessarily very, let's go and let's try a lot of things. And this is over simplification of a, of a whole society of teachers. But how, did you, how do you tell your parents that you're going to start freelancing in a new technology that was invented at, a couple of handful of years ago? Uh, you know, it's, uh, at that point, I had been a business owner. Like last time I had a job working for somebody, I was 18 or 19 years old, I was a bouncer. So they were kind of used to me being an entrepreneur of some sort. Okay. Um, so, and also, uh, you know, my father was a teacher for most of his career, but he did own a car dealership for first six, seven years at one point. So he had, he was, had business experience and my mother as well. So they, they, you know, I, I've been exposed to business and entrepreneurial lifestyle my entire life, really in some form or another. So they weren't so, you know. You know how it is it, with, with friends and family. If you're doing well, everybody's high fiving you. If you're doing mm-hmm. well, you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. Yeah, <laughs> I told you so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you get you get that mix. Except for experienced, experienced business people is a different thing because anybody who's been in business long enough will tell you there are ups and downs. And uh, well, some of, one of my mentors, he ran a fifty million dollar company, and he he told me. Without a, uh, you know, without a moment's hesitation, without any embarrassment, he said, yeah, I've been bankrupt twice, personally. And he's mm-hmm. like, it's part of the process. You know, and then another, another one of my mentors, you know, he's, he's even bigger, and he even you know, bankruptcy and bankrupting companies and having failures in business is part of the process. If you, it's mm-hmm. like stepping in the ring fighting. You're going to get hit. Even if you're the best fighter in the world, you're still going to get hit. So, yeah, the family was, you know, for people who are not entrepreneurs, it's very alien for them. Mm-hmm. Like, what is this guy doing? It's kind of weird. A lot of people, if people don't have that entrepreneurial mindset, it's a very alien thing. They don't understand it. It's, uh, it's something weird for them. And people who are into the game, for them, they just understand the process. So it was, you know, it's like my family is very laissez-faire in terms of uh, okay. they let people do what they want to do. But regarding even, okay, I understand the business ownership, but the, the freelancing, because I assume it's not only freelancing, it's, it's freelancing on when I'm not saying graphic, graphic design, but I'm talking about now coding specifically. 
1996, I was two years old. I'm not, I don't remember a lot of the internet back then, but I'm, I'm assuming it's, <laughs> it's something novel. Like you said, Bill Gates, probably already one of the top richest people by then in the world saying, this is not going to do anything. How do you even prepare yourself mentally that this thing that I'm doing as fun as it is might not go anywhere? Or do you, did you have like an idea that this can go somewhere? Where was the tipping point? Maybe. No, I, I thought, I thought the web was going to be big. Uh, I really did. Um, I didn't know how it was going to shake out. And the reason I thought it was going to be big because me with my crappy website with a picture of, you know, color pictures of fish, I was <laughs> opening up accounts in Singapore and Hong Kong and different parts of Europe. So I figured if a little guy like me was able to accomplish, uh, you know, do this with such a simple iteration, if you will, that I thought that this was only the beginning of uh, where this was going. Um, but, it, you know, it, at that time, you didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, you know, mm, like anything okay. real. Okay. But I'm also an optimist by nature. I think that, uh, I, think, I think when you see tech, it, it facilitates a process. I think eventually it's in some form or another, it's going it's to take its place, right? Of course, of course. Okay, now I would like to touch about touch on martial arts because I know that you have a background in martial martial arts. And first of all, what's the martial arts? Was it MMA, more in the boxing, uh, karate? What was the um, the martial arts you started doing? Well, I, I I did it fairly consistently for nearly thirty years, and so I started like everybody else at the time with judo. Then mm -hmm. I did Japanese karate, kyokushin. Then I did taekwondo. And then I did Kedge Campbell. Mm -hmm. I actually got the frivs ahead. I got my black belt in Kedge Campbell. And they called it that, but that's a whole different story. Like the, my teacher's teacher was the Filipino guy who was a, a thug, a gangster in Montreal. And mm -hmm. he, he just, he had this unusual style. It was like a white crane type of style, but he just called it Kedge Campbell. And he made it very effective because he was he was he used to go around and enforce. He was an enforcer, mm -hmm. little guy, and he got assassinated when I was like fifteen or sixteen. It was like he got a what? Sorry, assassinated. But that hardcore strain of realistic fighting came from him, and he just mm -hmm. called it Kedge Campbell, even though it was in, when we actually saw the Kedge Campbell people, it's totally different. But anyway, then I did other things: boxing, wrestling, judo. I was really into it. I was really into it. Uh, but I, I really stopped. Last time I got in a ring, I was, it was like a long time ago, like uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Mm. I'm asking so, this because you're actually not the first one that I've interviewed who actually is in the, the business right now of helping teach or learning, not learning, sorry, teaching people how to code and who's also mm -hmm. into martial arts because I've interviewed a, a woman a few, a few months ago called Elena Kolevska. She mm -hmm. runs, uh, she used to run, now she, she's the CTO of another company, I think, but she used to run a part-time tech coding uh, language school, let's call it that. And she's also been very, very focused on capoeira. Ah, yeah. And like I said, my father used to do Aikido, Taekwondo, and a couple more, and he's, he's, a, he's into tech. I've done martial arts for a lot of years. I've always been a lot, very interested into tech, and only when I found you did I say, okay, this is time. Finally, here's somebody who seems at least a little bit sober, how he or she speaks about a specific topic. What, what martial arts did you do? Uh, I did karate, uh, the, the Japanese karate back in, in grade school. And then I did for five years, I think, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu and started to do a little bit of judo as well. 
but then I kind of had a big, big injury in the neck when I was doing jujitsu. I was rolling with my master, and I, I think from what my doctor said that my cervical might have twisted a little bit. And since then, it's it's been ten years, I think. And I even to I spent the, the last full week at home with a, a cervical collar because it's never been completely readjusted. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, that's a, that's why I stopped judo. I uh, I was doing some sparring and. Uh, I forget that somebody did a foot, tried to do a foot sweep on me mm-hmm. and twisted my ankle really bad. I was out for like months hobbling. So I said, that's it. I'm sticking to safe sports like boxing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember that. And one of the things I really, really love about jiu-jitsu is that you feel like a big pounding, but it's not punches, not kicks. It's more of a, the, the wrestle, the, the, the weight of the person. I've always enjoyed that because it's almost human chess. You, I want to put my hand here so they can roll. But if I do this, you do that. I've always enjoyed that. And like I said, I've, I found it very interesting that lately, the more people I talk with in the tech community, the, the, the nerds, like you like to call them, they all like to do some kind of physical exercise that it's a little bit, even though you can consider yoga in the mainstream right now, it's always a little bit of fighting against myself. And I, I find it very interesting. What Do you have any, any thought about that? Why people in the tech... People, ecosystem usually might like some kind of sports or martial arts specifically? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I haven't seen any data to, to say, suggest that tech people are more likely to do it. But uh, I think, I think, you know, as a general rule, you, you got to keep in shape, you know, cause you mm-hmm. can't think if you're in pain mm-hmm. of all, you know, the, the classic nerd is this, pasty out of shape guy or fat out of shape guy. So <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to say, but yeah, you know, I think, I think martial, I think because of USC and MMA, martial arts has become, it's grown in its popularity, mm-hmm. especially jiu-jitsu, right? Everybody's yeah. gone into that. Uh, yeah. I, I can understand the chess game. You get that as well with judo and yeah. wrestling. You can get that with boxing. It's just a different type, different way, but it's like, with the grappling, it's just everybody I know who grapples, they have these bad injuries because all it takes is one one guy when you're rolling to crank your arm or to crank your bit neck. Tougher, exactly. Sick. You're done. So I, 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 I like jujitsu. I think it's a great art. I think all the styles have something to offer. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, be very careful, especially if you're not, you know, if you look at all these professional fighters, um, people my age, they're all messed up really bad, like really bad, yeah. permanent. Yeah damage to their bodies. And to me, I think it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel you. I mean, I remember that in my, I don't know, dojo, but in the, the place where I used to train, I was actually one of the youngest people. I'm still very young. But I remember that I went there with 14 years old, but because I was already taller than everyone else, I had to train with the, with the, with the grown-ups, let's call it. And mm-hmm. I remember the day that that happened because I remember I was rolling. I felt like a inside my, my, my body, but I didn't, cause I was still hot. I didn't feel it. But as soon as the yeah. train ended, I began to, my whole body started to shift a little bit. And I remember that I, I had to go to the hospital. And like I said, 10 years have been, have been gone. And every once in a while I've had several injuries, shoulder, back and everything. And it seems that it never goes away, but going back to, to you, to coding, to studio web. So before we go actually a lot depth into Studio Web, I would like to ask you about language uh, to programming as a whole, as a discipline. Because mm-hmm. I've been honestly trying to do a career shift. And first of all, I think that one of the problems with learning 
to code nowadays is the access and the easy access to huge amounts of resource, but at the same time, easy access for people who don't know what the hell they're talking about, just to pick up on a camera, record something and say, you should do this, 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 give some good energy and out of the blue, you're supposed to be coding, making millions. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with uh, learning how to code. And this is actually something that was very drawn to you. You've always given me very, like I said, very sober vibe, like a very practical vibe. If you do this, it doesn't matter. I think you have a one, one said it doesn't matter the language that you learn how to code because you never waste time learning a language because you can always do it to another one. So first of all, I would like to ask you, so about the code learning educational method that's going on today, what's your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, let me just say there's been this... Uh, this herd of nerds jumping in on the code teaching bandwagon. And it's good in a sense because it creates a lot of, of uh, resources for people. But the problem that I see is that the vast majority of these nerds don't know how to teach. So the problem is you have somebody who wants to get into software development or coding. And so they take one of these courses from a nerd who's, who might be competent in terms of writing code. And then they have a very difficult time understanding. And then they say, well, I, this coding's not for me. And it's not so much them, it's so much that they got a course <laughs> that's really poorly put together. Because believe it or not, there's a technique and there is a process to teaching and breaking down things. So that's one of my, uh, one of the things that I see out there. Now, don't get me wrong, there are good courses and good teachers out there. I think uh, that's, that's one of the things I observed uh, that I see out there in terms of... Uh, the cold courses. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, though, I think it's a good thing. I think that uh, I like the fact, one of the things I liked about software development in general is that there's no, uh, there's no academic gatekeepers in, in that regard. So you don't need to have a higher education for the vast majority of coding jobs. You don't need to, to go into debt for, for tens of thousands, if not more, to be able to get into the game. You can get into the game with a course like mine or somebody else's and starts as a junior and build your mm -hmm. skills up. So that's kind of cool. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. But so, and taking this into some conversations that I've had with my family, when I say that I'm now working eventually for sure, I want to make a career shift to something that I've always been interested, but because I didn't follow math in uh, high school, never got a chance to go to engineering school. And the cool thing that is in Portugal, the university is quite cheap actually. So I've never had That's that good. issue. But when I need to tell my parents, hey, I'm going to teach, not my, my father specifically, but my girlfriend, for example, I want to learn how to code. And she says, I don't know if that's for you. That's very difficult. It has a lot of math, for example. So how do, you, how do I, or how do you debunk this notion to other people? Well, I, I've been doing it for, you know, since 94 and, and there's not much math in most coding that I've seen. <laughs> it's like, it's just experience in the field. Um, mm. There are some exceptions, maybe some type of game programming, but it, it's maybe AI. But then again, those, the, the complex math, the physics, for example, the games program, you, there are, there are objects that you can just leverage. Mm. It's, um, there's so much software development out there that does not require anything beyond basic math that it, it, it's kind of silly. Uh, the complexity in software development is not in math. The complexity is in being able to um, architect a, a clean code base. 
You know, mm. it's not the math. You know, for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part. So if you, I'm not good at math. I'm terrible at math. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you know, but it's never coming. Like, I, I can't think. I'm trying to think back now when I needed anything beyond multiplication, multiplication. I, I can't think of anything. It's, it's just not there. Once in a while, you have to do something a little bit more uh, complex, but there's just some library you just implement, you know, mm. some class. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah so for sure, for sure. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. This You need a lot of math. The reason I think the myth is pervasive is because in a lot of the uh, colleges, they make it a requirement. You need Cal 1 or 2 or whatever to get into software engineering or computer science. It's, 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 not, it's not reflective of what's actually being done in the, uh, in the workspace. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, but how do you, so, and how do you say that, for example, imagine that I finish your course in about two months and mm -hmm. I start my own project, I do something, I do some freelancing on the side, something for free, I do some freebies, and then I apply to a job and at the same time, I have someone who comes from a bootcamp and I have some, someone who comes from a university. How can I, as with no formal education, even if I put coding bootcamps into the formal education part here, how do I sell myself easier or how can I show that I'm better in theory or a better uh, bet to the company than those guys? Uh, number one, it depends on the type of business you're, you're going to, right? Certain mm -hmm. types of companies, maybe IBM or Microsoft might require you to have a degree because they have HR departments. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's lessening over time. For example, mm -hmm. Google mentioned, did a study a year ago. They released, they found that there was literally no difference in performance uh, with uh, candidates who came out of university and ones who had no formal education in terms of their ability to perform. This is mm -hmm. Google saying this. That being said, um, what you need is a strong portfolio mm -hmm. and you need to just be competent in terms of your level of skill. I think that will win out in the end. Like when I hire people, uh, they'll tell me if what, what level of you know, traditional education they have. It's, it's an afterthought for me personally. It's like, okay, that's good, but okay. What, what do you me. really know? Yeah. Show me, you know, what, what's your portfolio? You know, so that's why I advise people, once you have your foundations down, do some freebie jobs for clients. Go to a local store or friend or family and build something. It builds, you're gonna, that's how you're going to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're going to build your portfolio. And the other thing that you need is good, good communication skills. You know, yeah. if you, you know, if you can have, if you can communicate well with people, reading, writing, and you can speak to people and so forth, that's huge. That's huge. Uh, one of the biggest problems that you have even when you're building software for a client who's the end user is typically not um, a coder is that they don't understand code. They don't understand. So usually you have these, these guys who sit in the middle between the software developers Mm -hmm. for, and, and, and so that he provides a translation layer, if you will, to mm -hmm. communicate the conduit of communication between the suits, the business people, and the developers. So if you can be a good communicator, have a strong portfolio, you can go out there and compete with people who may have a degree. Mm, interesting. Okay. Another question regarding this. So another question that my girlfriend asked me when I said that I was going to start learning how to code is if it's so easy Let's, let's put it easy in quotes, to learn code, isn't that a problem that it can devalue the skill itself? If, if anybody can jump on it, the skill itself doesn't become that valuable. 
there's supply and demand to everything. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, is that uh, since so many, a lot of people are afraid of coding still, or they look at it and they and they hit a they hit a course, one of those courses, aforementioned courses, mm -hmm. and they and they have trouble in the first couple of weeks, and they drop it. And uh, those who are, who have the persistence to to push through and get through that those initial stages that are the most difficult part of the pro learning process, then uh, then they'll they'll be able to find work. It's just a question of supply. And that's a good point. But at this point in time, there's there's a huge uh, need for developers still in the market. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I, I figure at least another ten years or so. That's why it's a political issue down in the U.S. about bringing in uh, foreign talent, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the tech companies they want to hire, they want to bring in developers from India, etc., because they just need the people. It's uh, and okay. I can tell you from my own experience, it's hard to find good people. So again, it comes down to portfolio. If you got a good portfolio, you can communicate well. There's plenty of work. Okay, great. And I know you've mentioned this before, but what about the, the idea that AI can code for us? Is that a, something that you see in the, in the near future? Long time from now. <laughs> like there's a, there was an AI hype and I got caught up with a, little, a little bit with it because I was talking to people on a superficial level. But I have two friends, one person who used to work for me, and they just, they have, a, he's a CTO of a company. The and one that you're cool going to bring to the channel in a, in a couple of days? A couple, hopefully a couple of weeks. It's just coordinating with him. And they, uh, they're, they're partnering with Google now. Mm -hmm. Okay. I won't get into the details, but uh, so yeah, they, they invested a couple of years in their AI and they found that a pure AI solution is just not possible for what they're doing. And what they're doing is not, not, not 1% as complex as writing software. So the way AI is going to be implemented in the software development game, it's it's going to be uh, supplemental. Like you're going to have more intelligent IDEs that will use AI to kind of figure out what you're doing, provide mm -hmm. suggestions, kind of like code code hitting plus plus, if you will. Mm -hmm. And but it's going to take time. This idea that you're going to tell an AI to write a piece of software for you, it's like <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I don't see that coming for a long time. Speaking of hypes. Um one of the biggest hypes that I've, I think I've felt close to me in the, the, the recent, recent, uh, moments I've, I've been very, very focused on startups for the last two, two and a half years, three years. And I've felt the cryptocurrency market sweep me off my feet. I've never invested a single thing because I'm too much of a, of a person who doesn't like to spend money and, and things that I don't understand. But what's your, mm -hmm. what's your feelings on the hype of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, like some people say the shit coins as well. So what's your, your feelings on well, those? I don't know if you saw at the all time high of the cryptocurrencies, I put out a couple of videos on YouTube, right? I don't know mm -hmm. if you saw those yeah, yeah, yeah. and I warned people. And, um, I think people conflate and I'm not an expert in, in blockchain in crypto, but I think people conflate, uh, the, the, the tokens, coins mm -hmm. with the underlying blockchain technology and there's several variants, you know, F Ethereum and, mm -hmm. and the Litecoins and the Bitcoins and whatever the blockchain, the platform, the everything. Yeah. To me, as far as I understand, the, the, the cryptocurrency, the, the, the blockchain are just, they're just a, a distributed database, a new type of database. 
There's relational databases. Some people call them SQL databases. There's object-based databases, which not too many people use. There's flat file, you know, which are uh, no SQL databases. And now you have blockchain databases. And they have their function. Uh, but I, I don't, I, you know, this is where my experience in investing from, you know, years back sort of comes into play here where I say to myself, okay, let's say the, some major institution wants to adopt uh, an Ethereum-based blockchain. Why would they pay you $1,000 for your Ethereum coin when they can just start their own Ethereum blockchain and generate the coins for free? You know, it's like, mm. what do they need your coins for? And that all being said, let's look at it. All markets are driven to a certain extent by, um, by uh, psychology by mania. And when you see any asset class, whether it be blockchain, chain, houses, uh, oils, uh, gold, silver, minerals, whenever you see the chatter amongst the general public where you got uh, coffee, people will sell who work at Starbucks or buying, buying Bitcoin, that's like a, that's a pure classic sign of a mania, you know? Mm. So that's, that's why I crashed. And will it go back up? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to go back up to its old heights, although I don't have a crystal ball. And the reason I don't think it's going to go back up is because you had, you had all these suckers who got burnt, right? All these mm -hmm. people got burnt really bad. And, it, 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 you know, and people will say, well, yeah, crypto has gone up and dropped again and, and came back up. But I think last time when it went up, it, wasn't, it still didn't hit critical mass. Last time the, 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 the cryptos went up quite a bit, um, you didn't hear her talk about it all over the place. You didn't have people working at Starbucks buying it, but now they mm -hmm. have. And the majority of people who bought crypto got, got burnt really bad, right? Yes. The majority got burnt really bad. And um, so whether it goes back up, I don't know. Like we, like seven, eight years ago, or whatever it was, when, when Bitcoin was four cents and five cents a coin, I was trying to buy them. Because I figure, I just think it's going to go up because people just buy into these things, like they buy into comic books or they buy into Cabbage Patch dolls or they buy, you know what I mean? They go for, I never got through, I, I we never got into, I, my partner, my buddy and I, we were trying to buy, we were trying to buy, it was so hard to buy them. We were just going to buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin at four and five cents, but at, at the height, they would have been worth 200 million. But... Here's a, here's a little a lesson in investing. I would never have held them until 200 million. There's no chance. If I would have bought them, if I would have bought them at a thousand, when they went to 10,000, you can be sure I would have sold them all at a thousand, 10,000, right? Because I would never expected it to go to 20,000 or 19,000 and change a coin. So yeah, blockchain hype, hype that's crashed. I think uh, you, I saw that with the dot-com bubble, right? Mm -hmm. They had all these pets.com as one of the famous ones, you know? And uh, so, yes, there's, there's a future to blockchain tech. I don't know how it's going to shake out. I haven't jumped into it. I haven't investigated it thoroughly enough to, to, to have an opinion on that. But I think that it's, 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 it's hyped up quite a bit. Just like just seven, eight years ago, gold and silver, it was hyped up and it went nuts. The price was not as bad as high as Bitcoin and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and all the other coins, but it went up quite a bit and then it crashed and it's never gone back up seven, eight years later. So it's sort of hovering around its, its, uh, its, its intrinsic value, mm -hmm. value based on, because unlike Bitcoin and most of these coins, uh, gold and silver is actually used to some extent. Yeah, in there, there's some usability in it. 
Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, you can make money. Like I, one of my former students is actually, um, I'm supposed to go see him. He's actually involved in, um, in the trading of, uh, of these uh, coins. And he sees it as a trading vehicle. And he's got a pretty big organization based, based around this. I can't get into details mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. No but uh, so there's money to be made. But if you're trading stuff, be very careful. It's like, uh, it's highly emotional. It's highly emotional. And uh, if you get caught up in that whole world of investing and trading, you're just going to be looking at, the, you know, what's the price of Bitcoin? What's the price of Litecoin? And you, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you won't get any work done. I actually have an opinion on on the prices of cryptocurrencies I will share with you. Uh, I've had this conversation on the podcast before because what I see is that even though the crash has been very heavy on people, I think that with the, if you, I think now the the Dow Jones and the S&P have been going down steadily lately. There's an upcoming, even if it's just a correction of the market itself. So with the correction of the market, people won't say, oh, the dollar is going down or the euro is going down. Let's put our money on Bitcoin. No one will do that because they need cash in hand. So because of that, I believe that Bitcoin will still go down. And I think that in two or three years, if the correction is, is heavy, and it's more than a correction, it's a crash. I think people will look at blockchain technology and say, I not only lost when it get, went from 20,000 to 3,000, I lost when it went to 3,000 to 300 again. I'm not going to put my money into it again, ever again. I think there's a big, big problem there is People got very hyped, like the dot-com bubble, even though I've, I was only six years old when that happened. But I know that people get burned really bad, and I'm very scared about those people. I, you're very, I, I agree 100% with you. When somebody gets burnt, they never go back into that. I know, I've been burnt. And I never, I'll never go back into those markets where I got burnt because it's just like leaves a very bad taste in your mouth, and you don't want to go back there. And I think... If I was a betting on this, I would bet on that, uh, what you just said. I think that's more likely possibility, but I don't have a crystal ball. Not me know. neither. <laughs> no, I, think, I think that the main thing, like you said, the, the getting burnt, even though my generation is only coming now to, to get money now, but I think that man, many people in my generation won't ever feel very comfortable in putting money in the real estate market or even trusting banks completely because of the things that we saw in 2007 when our parents got burned really seriously or got the heart of the jobs or lost a lot of money. So I think that my generation will look at Bitcoin and say, oh, this is fancy. But the older generation will say, no, no, never again. I don't think I'll ever put the money in those crypto blah, 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 things. Yeah, you're probably right. It's like Buffett talks about this. The key to investing is, is being able to assess the actual value of something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like housing is a classic example, you know, uh, you know, houses got so expensive in the States, well, all over the world where, you know, those, uh, maybe the house cost 200000 to make mm-hmm. and they went up to a million. And you're going, why would, why? It doesn't make any sense because houses are consumables, right? They, mm-hmm. they get, as they get older, they, they break. And yeah, they it get was value. Million. So it's purely speculative in my opinion. But, you know, the house markets, you know, it also housing has a history though. Mm-hmm. as being a safe haven. So right now in Canada, we have massive housing bubbles in Toronto and in Vancouver, driven mm-hmm. by a lot of foreign investment, investing. And so that's the way our markets are. Markets are mostly psychology, psychological. That's, mm-hmm. I think, a big takeaway from my experience. It's mostly psychology. Funny thing that you just mentioned. I don't know if you're how, um, how knowledgeable you are of the European market, but I can say that, for example, in Lisbon, so Portugal, a very mm-hmm. small country, beautiful country, 
long history, but a very small country with a minimum wage of around, I think it's 600 net, 600 euros per month. Right mm -hmm. now, the rent in some houses is more expensive than the ones that I feel now every day in Berlin. On it, I just rented a new house with my girlfriend in Berlin and we found a house cheaper than some of our friends in Lisbon are trying to get for much less space in a worse locations. It's absurd. The price hmm. per square meter in, in some areas of Lisbon were more expensive than in the richest areas in Paris. Just so you understand their ridiculousness. Wow. Wow. It's, it, it's the weather. <laughs> it's the weather. <laughs> well, just very, very briefly, I've been comparing real estate values in Montreal versus uh, Calif Southern California. And, and they're very comparable. And Montreal is like a freezing wasteland half the year. <laughs> My recent videos show that it's like, yeah, it's like, wow, do I buy a, a, a condo here or a house here where I'm freezing the butt off half the year, or I buy it on on the Pacific Ocean in, <laughs> in California, you know? And Florida is even cheaper. It's like, so anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's but Florida market, will whatever. go down, will still go down because of the, the, the water or something. And California will eventually fall itself. Oh, we don't know. Let's all go yeah. back to Portugal and go to the cheap, cheap places and good weather. Portugal, Spain, uh, Greece, great, uh, great weather. Yeah. Funny thing you said, Portugal, Spain, and Greece. Uh, if you said Italy, I would have laughed because in, Port in Europe, because of the, the recession, we had some, the four countries called the pigs. So it was fun that you mentioned the three of them. So going back <laughs> to, to learning how to code, let's mm -hmm. say that I've never heard of you. I've never heard of any course. And I go onto YouTube and say, I want to learn how to code. Which were the first language? What would be the first steps? They would say, Andre, you should do this. Um. For me, uh, for maximum flexibility, I, I'm still surprisingly a big believer in the web stack because the web stack can get you corporate jobs. It can get you into freelancing. The web is the is is the uh, is your foothold into most uh, if entrepreneurship, if you will. Mm -hmm. The web is still it. This web is still it. And I'm a guy who who will change and drop a tag based on what I see, but that's to me would be my first choice. Like you look at, I talked about this recently, you look at Python, great language and has many, many use cases, but really the big rise in the Python jobs is in the AI field and, and the um, big data number crunching mm -hmm. and so data forth. That's what it, yes. And um, that usually in those areas, you're looking at more degree oriented areas. So it's like to, to do data science, uh, with Python, you have to be a data scientist. <laughs> you can't learn Python, then you're going to go become, you know, do data science, as far as I understand. You have to be a data scientist. So in terms of maximum flexibility, I would do that because as soon as you, you know, a couple, a couple months of coding with the web stack, even the basic level, then you can, um, you know, if you decide you want to get into Python and server automation or you want to go to game development, C Sharp and, and Unity, it's there, right? Mm -hmm. You have it's you can you can jump around, but that just opens you up to a lot of op opportunities. If that makes sense. So when you talk about web stack, which languages? Because one of, one of the things that I see every day is ninety percent of the YouTube videos I've seen about learning a new language is in twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen or twenty seventeen. For how long I've been trying to learn how to code, it's always let's talk about JavaScript. Let's talk about Ruby, not Ruby. Sorry, uh, I know that you like to to make fun of the the Ruby community sometimes. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's talk about React. 
talk about blah, 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 blah. And I think there's a lot of noise sometimes, a lot of words, a lot of things that kind of might scare people who don't come from the tech background specifically. So when you say web stack, what are you mentioning? I'm talking the basics, HTML5, CSS3. And then I would do, uh, I would touch JavaScript. Touch it means just learn the basics of it because then JavaScript, you can go in all these different directions. Once you have that, those three languages, and it sounds more than it is, it's actually not too, so not that difficult to get, at least your head wrapped around that. Mm -hmm. uh, then what you do is you can start, you'll have what I call the nerd eyes. You'll be able to assess <laughs> the technology that's out there in terms of different languages and frameworks, whether it be React or Angular, or whether you want to go into iOS and Swift or Android and Kotlin or Java. These are all different options that you have. And what I suggest, once you have that, that basic foundation under your belt, then look around at the types of jobs that are out there. Check you know, in your part of the world and mm -hmm. see what you might want to do. And with that background then and that ability to assess this properly, then you can you know, specialize. Mm -hmm. You may find yourself specializing in JavaScript and Node. You may find yourself specializing. You may head over to Swift iOS if that makes sense for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, but coming from the web stack, is it easier to eventually jump? So when I say web stack, is that, for example, your course specifically, is it easy mm -hmm. or if I come from your course to then jump to iOS development or to Android development, is it is something that it's doable or is it something that is very scary because there's a lot of more languages, a lot more things to learn? Blah, 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 blah. I, I, I think uh, if you do the web stack, I think you could jump into all kinds of different directions. The reason I mentioned a web stack is because I'm biased because I don't just teach the code, right? I don't just teach HTML and CSS. I teach things around it. So if you, I don't know if you've done the course yet or not, but I teach. Like, I'm doing the, I'm in the CSS now, the CSS course. Okay. So you've learned about server and client computers, request mm -hmm. response cycle, how forms are processed. All these, these are the foundational mechanisms of the web, mm -hmm. right? These are the things that I, I teach the infrastructure around the code, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I I have a Python course, which is outside of the web stack, as you know, and mm -hmm. uh, I've been asked to do Java and C Sharp and other languages. Um, I might do Java at some point, but I think that you've, I just have my web stack course. And if you did my web stack course with the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript, maybe jump into PHP, the SQL with the databases, and the Python, then, you know, you got everything you're going to need. You could go in any direction that you want, learn any language, any framework that you want. I, I would like to touch upon that because you, you say this a lot during your, your, your videos. And it's something that I've, I have here written to, call, to ask you for sure. It's about the need to nerd mentality, learning a new language on a need to nerd basis. Mm -hmm. And can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So for example, and I'll first make a preface for people who don't know what this is. No, actually... Could you do a preface of what the need to nerd mentality learning on a need to nerd basis? Well, it's just by play of words on need to know basis. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> one of the things that uh, when you're first starting in the development game, I remember myself, it's very overwhelming because there's so many languages and so many frameworks and everybody is saying that theirs is the best and everything else sucks and you have to learn our thing. That's the future. This is common. This has been, I've seen this for 20 odd years now. Uh, just different technologies now. And what I discovered in my real career as a software developer is that um, a, there's nobody out there who knows everything. It's literally impossible. 
you know, as in my own career, I, f- I forget much more than I still remember, you know. But if I went back into it, for example, I haven't written, written Java code commercially in a long time. But if I went back into it, I'd get back up to speed in a few days. But mm-hmm. I, you ask me now, you know, even the basics of the Java, you know, the API, I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's, like, mm-hmm. it's been so long. Um, so the need to nerve philosophy has taught me is basically – you, what you're going to find in your real work is that you're going to step into a project and you're constantly having to learn things things as a developer. So you may go in there as a Node expert, for example, Node JavaScript as an example, but you're going to find that even within that context, you're going to be having to learn some some MP, some package, some new library. It's a constant in software development that you're constantly learning new things. It's It's part of the game. I think there's there's this misconception out there with young developers that you're gonna you do the right courses, you take you get the right degree, and all of a sudden you know everything you know, and you're just gonna implement what you know. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So I talk about need to nerd in that you you learn technologies when you need to do it. Yeah, that's it. You know. But is it something that it, once again let, let me put it this on the easy to sell basis. Uh, I'm, I've done your web stack course. I've done a few freebies. I've been a freelancer and I know the, the web stack as you teach it. So with a PHP focus, let's call it. Cause I know that a lot of people like to bash on PHP for some reason. I'm not there yet to know. So I won't know, but for mm-hmm. example, I go to a company that says, Oh no, we are no JS company. How easy in, in, in theory can I, as a programmer who has these fundamentals, HTML, CSS, JavaScript and PHP, how easy can I say, yeah, I can do it in no easily in give me two weeks and I'm good at it. Is it something that it's doable or is it just a figment of my imagination that it's possible to do that? I can do it in two, three weeks. I'm good. Good to know. Oh yeah. 100%. Because uh, yeah. So let's say you learn basic, uh, let's say you you do Python, uh, PHP uh, development. Mm -hmm. You learn the CRUD, which is your basic database interactions. And let's say, you learn a, a PHP framework like Laravel. So then you jump into Node.js with Express.js, which are the equivalents. For you to jump over, it will take you a couple of weeks max, and you'll be comfortable, if not sooner. Because what they're doing is the same thing. They're, they're doing request response between the client and the server. Uh, there are some architectural differences for sure, and there's some advantages that Node will bring to the table. Uh, versus PHP, versus Python, versus Java, versus C Sharp, etc. But yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's not going to be a huge hurdle for you to jump around. It's like I I I I, I equate it to like learning to drive. You learn how to drive a, a Porsche to jump into a high powered uh, Audi or BMW is not going to be a big deal. Yeah, so the controls are a little different. The cars handle a little bit different, but it's pretty, pretty much, much the same thing. Okay. So yeah, it's not a, it's not an issue. And I, and I, from my own experience in my last couple of years as a developer, as a freelancer, I even though my favorite language at the time was Java, and I had my own Java framework I like to implement because I knew it really well. But I would go into a job and I would just assess the job, and based on the criteria, I would choose a, a technology stack. And sometimes I would learn a whole a whole new technology from scratch for that particular job. Interesting. Okay, one last thing before we wrap up the conversation, I'd like to focus a little bit on Studio Web, if you don't mind. So you say yeah. that you do have a SaaS business, so software as a service for schools. Mm-hmm. 
So first of all, uh, which lang- uh, which ages usually do you try to to target with your with your courses? Middle school and up. I have middle school up through college. Uh, yeah, that's that's the range depending on the courses. So middle schools will, will deal more with the HTML, CSS, touch of, some JavaScript maybe, and then the colleges they'll go into the Python or the advanced, more advanced JavaScript and the PHP and the databases. Mm, okay. Okay, and how hard have you been finding it to sell to usually, I assume, publicly funded companies or companies, not sorry, uh, schools or do you have like an idea of how other companies or other people that might be listening to us that are selling to schools, not necessarily an online course, but how can they take your vast knowledge of this industry, let's call it? It's very slow. Um, The sales cycle is very slow in schools. Typical... 18 months. Uh, so it's, you have to have very uh, long time horizons with uh, any type of educational business. Uh, the typical business will take three to four years to establish a typical educate business in the educational space, five to 10 years. Oof. It takes a long time and because the schools are, are entities that are extensions of the government. As such, you have to deal with the, the bureaucracies and the processes and you know, they're sold to change. It's just the nature of their, uh, of that, uh, of that area, especially in the code space, because code is still, there's a lot of hype around it, but in the school systems, depending on the schools, depending on the districts, um, it's slower to, uh, slower to move. Uh, so you have to have the ability to fund, <laughs> fund it for a long time. It's years and years and years before uh, it became profitable. Yeah, because I, I don't, besides maybe, I don't know, besides some language learning schools and probably, an, uh, I, I don't see a lot of ed tech startups who have been very successful. Maybe Udemy, Udacity, and those online course portals, maybe a language learning platform like Duolingo or something, but I don't see a lot of language learning, uh, langu- sorry, educational technology flourish. Do you think it's because of that or is it just... Because the, I don't know, I don't know how to, to, to perform this question, actually. I think it's just a very hard industry and sector to be successful, harder than probably others. It's harder because, A, a lot of people who get into it, uh, the developers don't know anything about education. They don't know their space. It's something I teach like in, my, in my freelance course or my entrepreneur course. I said it's more important that you understand the space, the business space that you're getting into than knowing Node.js or a new language. It's if you understand the space, the domain, the business domain, then you can identify the weaknesses and the, or let me, let me take that back. Not weaknesses. You can identify the areas within that domain that could, could, they, they could use some sort of technology to help it out. Right. Mm. And so a lot of the ed tech startups, they don't have that, that knowledge. And uh, in all honesty, when I started Studio Web, I built the, we built the prototype seven or eight years ago. So I said, OK, I have an idea for uh, to take the, uh, the code training process to a higher level in terms of mm-hmm. how it's implemented. So I, I architected it and I just put I put a, a developer on it. And we built the prototype, and it was really rough and tumble. And uh, then, uh, you know, I, I beta tested it with some people, 
And then we had a couple of schools approach us. And then it started, then the real learning started to happen in terms of understanding the use case of the schools. Uh, it, it, where we would we would get calls from the teachers. Okay, we have this problem. We have this, can you do this? Can you do that? And sometimes, like I I flew down to schools down in the mid U.S. and I sat there for a couple of days with my lead developer uh, at the time. We sat there and just watched the students use the system, watch the teachers use the system to understand what the use case was. And so. The original idea for that SaaS, the CityWeb SaaS, as it was seven, eight years ago, it's very different today. Mm -hmm. The core of it's the same. The core of it is the same. But we had to make some significant changes in addition to the software, according to what we learned on the ground. Now, fortunately, I had the I had the financial wherewithal to fund it all this time. Um, and uh, so, Studio Web today, Studio Four, is a very different beast than the original. Uh, software simply because I didn't really understand the space. Even though I, c I come from a, a teacher's background, my my parents, excuse my family's backgrounds in teaching, I still had a lot to learn in terms of that. So what we did, it goes to my philosophy of building software. When you when you come out with your first iteration, it should be just get it out as quickly as possible. So because you're not gonna you're not gonna crack the that code right away, if you will. You're not gonna have the perfect implementation of the software first time around. There's no way, unless you happen to be an expert in the domain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I we just built it really rough. And after several years, I, I you know I, we we started rebuilding Studio Web from scratch, based on all that knowledge. So now we with Studio Web Four, which just got released like a month or so ago, we have a very clean code base which has been architected from the database up, in accordance to the. Uh, of what we know about that domain. So it's a much better system. So that's why educational startups have huge difficulty. It's one of the reasons is that a lot of the people getting into it, they just don't know the space. The other reason is the culture is very slow, so that uh, it takes a long time for people to want to adopt it. It's just the nature of the bureaucracies. And another thing, in the West, education is not as um, appreciated as it is in like Asia. Chinese and Indians, they'll spend a huge amount of their disposable income, families will, to educate because they, they believe and they understand how important it is to educate the kids. Whereas in North America and perhaps in Europe, it's, it's more of a, it's not valued as much. So to invest the money in there, they're not as, they're not as quick to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Does that mm -hmm. answer the question? Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Okay. Um, and by the way, so for someone out there who might be listening and might be in the school, where can they find more about Studio Web so, so that I can contact you if they want to put Studio Web inside their own infrastructure? It's, it's just studioweb.com and you can reach us. You can reach us there. And uh, we set up that we can set up demos for the schools and, uh, and uh, they can just see, see how, how it works, see if it works for them. Okay, fantastic. So before we wrap up the conversation, I would like to, first of all, thank you very much for your time. And it's really, really been great. A great conversation, at least in my book. Mm -hmm. And I would like yeah, to ask you, one. thank you very much. So I will ask you now a couple of rapid fire questions. I assume you know mm -hmm. the, the process. I'll ask you one question, less than one minute to answer. Usually it takes 30 seconds. Cool. Right. Yep. One to three books that have impacted your life the most. Oh, uh, Martin Fowler, Fowler, I think it is. It's, um, 
Refactoring. It's a book, uh, one of the classical books on refactoring code. It's for Java, mm-hmm. but uh, I think that's a t- that was a very uh, impactful book in terms of my software. Uh, what else is there? I don't know. Lord of the Rings. I'm a nerd, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings, I think it was a big one. And uh, strangely enough, Shogun. Shogun book, Martin, uh, James Clavel. I read that book when I was uh, in the hospital dying. So uh, great book. I highly recommend. Shogun for me, it's a, it's a, it's a Brazilian white tie fighter. So that's why I guess it's a, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a classic book. There was actually a mini series in the eighties. Uh, it was very good too. You might want to watch that one day for sure. So. Um, tell me something you've changed your opinion in the last six months. Um, how quickly AI is going to uh, transform society. I still think it's going to be huge. It's going to dwarf what the internet has done, but I think it's going to be a slower process than I had originally thought. Okay. I I also believe in that. Even though I believe that AI will have the power for transforming the society, I am a little bit more skeptical now than I was, I won't say six months, but a year ago when I started talking with a lot more people in the AI sphere, they have these high dreams. But when you see exactly what AI actually does, I remember I was talking with one of uh, Portugal's top AI developers and he says that AI is so stupid that it shouldn't even have the eye. It's just artificial for now. It's not intelligent (laughs) at all. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Uh, I have a friend of mine who has an AI-based business, and uh, it's very specialized in its niche. For AI to work now, it has to be extremely specialized in terms of its topical niche, if you will. And he says even within that context, that narrowly defined context, he finds that if he he's always working on the narrative of the AI, the AI, the, its ability to respond and intelligently and so forth. And when he fixes the here he says it ends up breaking something over there and then mm. when he fixes that problem it's a it's like a game of whack-a-mole and that tells <laughs> me that the technology is very immature still funny thing i saw a tweet a couple of months ago that said that if you want to get how what was it if you want to get developers you say machine learning if you want to get the money you want you say artificial intelligence so some people yeah, might even yeah. nowadays still don't know what the hell they're talking about <laughs> you put ai you're gonna get chances of you getting funding goes up like 252 percent <laughs> And if you then put on the blockchain without a with a decentralized application, self-funded and everything, everybody will go nuts. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> can't, you can't underestimate the power of the hype machine. <laughs> uh, tell me, do you have any life motto or quote that you like to live by? Yeah, yeah. Again, nerd reference. Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Hmm. It's a, it's a quote for, I got it from Star Trek, <laughs> which got it from um, Dante's Inferno. Mm. I don't know if there's a Star Trek episode called the Space Seed from the 60s, and they pick up these group of superhumans, and there's one guy named Khan, and when they, they send them off to exile to a dying planet, or Khan says to Captain Kirk, says, have you ever read Milton? And he goes, yes, I understand. And then Captain Kirk explains it to his sidekick, Spock. And it's in reference where uh, Satan is being cast out of heaven. And he screams, he screams up at, at God and says, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. That's the life of the entrepreneur. <laughs> 
<laughs> couple more questions. Uh, if I were to give you six months to prepare for a TEDx talk and you couldn't do it about co learning how to code, learning how to code, teaching how to code, what would it be about? Uh, what it would it be about? Psychology and business, I think. Okay. So, so, yeah, yeah. What would you say to your college self if you had the chance now? Oof, I would say, uh, don't sell your Apple stock so quick. <laughs> <laughs> Buy those goddamn Bitcoins and hold them for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one, one last question, then we'd say over. So with the current... Uh, turmoil around the internet, uh, deplatforming, uh, from Patreon, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. What do you think people should pay attention to that? What should we do to better prepare ourselves? And when I say ourselves, not only as content creators, but at the same time as people who are learning to make a living off the internet of business and building our own businesses, what do you think we should be worried about and we should do to better protect ourselves? Good question. I think uh, the oldest rule of the game, diversification is huge. So have yourself a presence on multiple platforms, uh, for sure, including your own website. Can't kick you off your own website. So that's the number one thing. That old rule of diversification is huge, huge. And also just assume that whatever is said online, whatever text message is said, uh, whatever, whatever it's, it's permanent and it can come back to bite you. And you got to be very careful because if you're a sarcastic person and you, you, you can be misinterpreted or taken out of context very easily. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you got to be very, 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 very careful about what you say. Even jokes, like I've seen people, they make jokes and it can be easy misinterpreted. I learned that texting with ex-girlfriends. So, you know, just so <laughs> Be very clear with what you're saying. Never make a joke in writing. It's one of the bigger rules for everyone. Never joke in writing because they will misinterpret it to the worst case scenario 90% of the time. Yeah, yeah that's, that's 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. It's a universal. And uh, yeah, I think that's what it, and, and just, you know, reserve judgment, you know, before you jump and jump into something, just you know, let everything settle mm -hmm. because the emotions will cloud judgment. And so let, let the emotions die down so you can assess things much more uh, intellectually. Yeah. I agree. Well, Stefan, I must say that this was one of my favorite episodes so far. If people want to find you, get in touch with you, where can they find you? They find me at uh, studioweb.com or they can find me on YouTube. I, I think my YouTube channel is still called Killer PHP. <laughs> <laughs> It's possible. <laughs> yeah, so you can just type in Stefan Mischuk. I'm the only uh, Stefan Mischuk out there. Fantastic. So. It was really fun having you here, Stefan. It was, I really learned a lot and I can tell you that I'm really, really excited for tomorrow to get back onto, onto well, it's, it's killer sites, I think, that I'm still learning there, but onto the, the learning code bandwagon because I really, really feel like I have a chance to get must get me some FU money and eventually figure out what I want to do with my life. Very cool. I appreciate that. Glad I could help. Oh, thank you very much. Have a nice day. You too. 
Thank you so much for plugging into this episode. I truly hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Stefan is truly an inspiring figure, and I truly hope you go through the show notes and subscribe to his YouTube page and consider buying one of his courses and testing it for yourself. This and any other information that you might have missed will probably be linked up in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows, we can get some more people and help everyone be the pioneers of their lives and careers. Also, if there's any feedback that you might have for me, reach out on social media. A big thank you for Stefan for his time and to Thibaut Flondlin, aka DJ Rodia, for the music of the Pioneers show. So, talk to you later. Have a nice time. Bye-bye.